Hello, welcome. Thank you so much for joining me. This is Embodied Astrology, and this is Renee, your host. I am a consulting astrologer. I work with clients regularly, reading their birth charts, their natal charts, their relationship charts, their uh, business charts. We look at all kinds of different charts. And I have a long background in somatic practice. Um, I'm a somatic movement educator and an artist. And so I bring all that into astrology. And embodied astrology is the place where I just ramble for a while about these intersections and think about astrology as a way to contextualize our lives here on earth. Um, I think it's a really beautiful language to use to think about what's going on. And today I have a really special episode. It's the first time I've ever done a Q&A and I'm really excited to do it. Really excited to be working in community with all of you. And thank you so much for submitting your questions. Those of you that sent questions, I got a lot of them. I won't be able to get to all the questions in this episode, and I'm planning on doing some more Q&A or maybe making it a regular um, special feature or something. And I've also been thinking about how Instagram could be a good platform for Q&A. I don't quite know how that would work. There are stories and IGTV and stuff like that. And um, if you're an Instagram aficionado and have some ideas about how to really um, take advantage of that platform, I would love to hear your thoughts. Please send me a note. I'm recording today on Wednesday. It is August 14th. It's the day before the full moon, the eve of the full moon. And I am really wanting to dedicate this episode to community, um, to the relationships that I have in my life, and to the relationships with all of you. Uh, Many of you I don't know, and it's kind of a crazy thing to work on the internet, to sit alone in a room and record, and then put it online and see uh, how many people are listening and where in the world you are. And sometimes I hear from you, I get emails and uh, you show up on social media. And a lot of you have subscribed and you support Embodied Astrology and thank you so much. Um, I am so blessed to be able to do this work. It started off as just a research project. I never really thought embodied astrology would, um, take off in the way that it has. I always, or at least at first thought it was just going to be, you know, a small group of friends that would humor me. Um, but over the past couple of years, it's become my job and I really love doing this. So thank you so much. Um, thank you. If you're a subscriber, you make this happen. You support these podcasts. Uh, you support all the offerings that come out, the audio horoscopes, the month ahead, um, embodiment practices, this Q and a, and my time just holding this space. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoy embodied astrology and if you receive benefit from it, please support it. The easiest way to support this podcast is to share it with your friends. After that, the easiest way is to write awesome reviews and click the hearts and the likes and leave comments. And if you have a couple extra dollars, you could 
throw them my way. Leave me a tip. Um, You can do that as a one-time offering. You can also sign up to become a regular monthly donor. And you can donate at any amount per month. Literally, you could give 50%, uh, 50%, give me 50%, 50 cents a month. Um, You could give me 50 bucks a month. And when you subscribe to be a monthly donor, you have access to um, some special content that I create, which is a month ahead planner. And that planner includes um, planetary aspects and lunar cycles and some of my suggestions for understanding how the astrology might be felt in your life and how to work with it. You also receive access to a special month ahead forecast recording and you get pretty big discounts on all of the online stuff that I offer, all of my online classes and my year ahead birthday reports for the signs. Um, So it's a really great deal. And again, it's by donation. It's pay what you can. Um, Just think of it as like taking me out for tea once a month if you um, enjoy listening to your horoscopes or something like that. And then finally, I want to dedicate this episode to my sweet cat, May. Her full name is Shadow May. She is 23 this year. And tomorrow on the full moon, she's going to be leaving her kitty body and moving into her spirit body. And some of you might know the process I've been in. It's been about a year now that I've been not sure um, what she wants to do and kind of thinking about what it means to help an animal friend pass. Um, It's such a weird thing to live with domesticated animals to be part of their domestication um, and training, but then uh, to keep them alive and then to be in this position of kind of, you know, killing them, killing her. Um, But tomorrow there is a full moon, as I said. Um, It's a really sweet day. Astrologically, Venus will trine Chiron. Um, and then we'll have the full moon and then the moon will move into Pisces, which is the afterlife, the great mystery. And that's when May is going to be moving on. And she's sitting here as I'm recording and she's so sweet. And, um, I don't know, I kind of rolled my eyes and was skeptical for a long time when people told me they talked to their pets. And over the past couple months, I've been, um, talking to May And I actually thought she was going to keep living. And then the other day, she really let me know that she was ready to go. She's very arthritic. She's kind of blind. She's senile. She gets lost in the hall. But, oh, God, she's such a sweetheart. So I just wanted to let you know, because a lot of folks who've had readings with me, if they've come over to my house, um, May has been part of the reading. She's either asleep by my desk or she comes and sits on my lap when I do a reading and you might have heard her um, little meow in some podcasts here or there sometimes she wants to say hi so if you think about it and you're um, around tomorrow on the full moon August 15th between three and five um, is when the vet is supposed to come and, and help her pass. So please say a prayer for her. She's a really magnificent being and um, lots of love to all of you who have animal companions and, and love. I've been so blessed to have this being in my life. All right. Um, I'm going to get into this Q&A. I wanted to talk a little bit about the full moon first. 
Um, it's a full moon in Aquarius. Aquarius is the sign of community. Embodied astrology has been expanding a lot in the last couple of months. I've been doing a lot of um, guest episodes. And uh, uh, I guess before I get into the full moon, I do want to say one more thing, which is listen to the last episode that just came out. It's called The Body as Sanctuary. It's a conversation with my friend Jeevan Singh, who is an amazing somatic womb and pelvic healer. Um, she works in the realm of pelvic health and is um, a doctor and a healer and a magician. And the interview is so good. She's so smart. And she talks about some things that I just think are really, really important right now. And especially with the themes of this full moon. So please um, look for that episode and check it out. There's also another recent guest episode with another friend, Aisha Edwards, which is an amazing um, conversation. Aisha does most of the talking and God, what a gift to hear that woman talk. Oh my God. She is also so fucking smart. Um, she's a trauma therapist and she talks a lot about her own experience and the work that she does. And yeah, I just feel really lucky to be in community and in conversation with these people and, um, other folks who I'm excited to be bringing onto the podcast. So keep listening in these next few months, um, and check them out. Okay. So tomorrow full moon in Aquarius, the full moon is always in opposition between the sun and the moon. That means that the sun is in the opposite sign to Aquarius, which is Leo. We are in Leo season. Um, a couple of weeks ago, I put out the embodied astrology for Leo season called glow time. Um, that's an embodiment practice and connection to Leo as an energy in your body. We all uh, all of us contain all of the signs, all of the planets in our own charts. So I prefer to think of everybody as a zodiacal um, constellation and har harmony. Um, people aren't just one sign. So eradicate that thought from your mind. In the full moon um, in Aquarius, which happens pretty much once a year, we get a, a new and a full moon in each sign. Um, what gets illuminated is the axis between Leo and Aquarius. So in this axis, we have Leo, um, and in the body, Leo rules the heart and the spine. Leo is a representation of our centrality. Its planetary ruler is the sun. The sun, of course, is the central point for our solar system. Its gravity keeps all of its planets and asteroids in our solar system in its in orbit around it, and um, it emits heat and light and that heat and light create the conditions on earth that allow us to live. So the sun is incredibly important. Leo is the only sign to be ruled by a star, not a planet. Um, Cancer is ruled by a satellite by the moon. But Leo is a very special sign. And um, this sign is how we each feel special. And it's where we need to find our specialness, um, discover our unique qualities, feel where we have something to express and take joy in that expression, take joy in kind of centering ourselves, our opinions, um, our playfulness, our silliness, our love. Again, Leo rules the heart. 
Um, and as an opposite to that, Aquarius is uh, the periphery. And so we might think of Aquarius as the group or the people. Um, and the balance between Leo and Aquarius is the balance between the self and then the self as it participates, as we participate in some kind of larger social experience or social dynamic, such as community or society. Um, that can include uh, our kind of friend groups, but really I think of Aquarius as the culture, as the society, or as the, um, the body politic, the, the soma of the larger body that we're a part of. Um, in astrology, there's not judgment. I don't think there's a lot of judgment. There's just description of how energy can work. And of course, energy can work in a really beautiful, generative, wonderful way, and energy can work in really destructive and awful ways, and everything in between. So on one side of the spectrum of the exaltation, the highest vibration of Leo and Aquarius, um, we have Leo as this rulership of the, of the sun, which is a stand-in for the heart. So when we are ruled by our hearts, when we are heartful, we are proud. And that's one of the qualities of Leo. Um, we, I think, in my experience, I feel the proudest of myself when I'm really in my heart, when I'm behaving in ways that I see um, spread goodness around me, when I feel like I can love and laugh and be playful and silly and be myself, um, then I feel proud of myself and then I'm able to do all of those things. This quality also serves uprightness. And again, Leo is uh, the ruler of the spine. And so when we feel proud of ourselves, we can open our chests, we can take deep full breaths in, we don't need to hide, and we can be upright. We can know that we are living in accordance with our own integrity. We have things to be proud of because our hearts are exalted. And um, in that feeling, we are in some kind of communion or uh, like mutual reciprocal relationship to community and we have a place in community and I think that this is one of the things that everybody needs is to feel like we have connection and uh, in the body Aquarius and Leo together rule circulation um, so the heart is pumping out blood and Aquarius I think rules the connective tissue that's one of the ways that I view Aquarius um, and the connective tissue includes your veins um, Aquarius in medical astrology is known to have an association to the nervous system and when I think of the nervous system I think about how a healthy nervous system is balanced between the ANS and the SNS that's the autonomic nervous system and the um, sensory or excuse me the somatic nervous system so this is the balance between the doing and the not doing nervous system and we can also think of how nerve pathways uh, have both sensory and motor functions so in a collective in a community there needs to be the taking in and the releasing out and for community to function, uh, each individual within the community, I think, needs to know what they have to offer and needs to be cared for. And then each individual in the community has to work in concert with the others. There has to be some kind of collectivist um, effort. So when Leo and Aquarius are really 
I think in their exalted space, we have communities of individuals who are supported to be heartful. And to be heartful, we have to be able to take feedback. Um, we're not always awesome, right? So we can be, um, it, you know, in ignorance or in modes that are kind of destructive, and that's natural. Um, and Leo is sometimes associated to childhood. And uh, I know um, I have a, a little four-year-old nephew, and um, when I'm around him, I think about Leo a lot because there's this little guy that's so cute and so playful and takes up so much space and is so entitled and sometimes is super destructive. But because we love him, then when he's going into that kind of more destructive, more entitled space, there's um, a sweetness with how we're going to give feedback. There's also a lot of, um, I think, desire on everybody's part to help like nurture his expression and help him find ways to express um, in you know a, a joyful way, but also in a way that's not destructive. So this is something that community ideally does, is we help each other grow. We help each other evolve. We help each other know ourselves. And when we know ourselves, when we can really get to know ourselves, when we really know our hearts, when we can really be in our uprightness, then we can give to community. And a healthy community has individuals in it, has people who are supported to speak their mind, uh, to offer from their unique and special perspective, to really pursue their gifts, and to feel themselves um, alive and awake and, and happy and playful in their lives. Leo is also often associated to romance. Um, I think of Leo as an erotic energy, not necessarily sexual, uh, although it could be, but really the playful eroticism and turn-on that we get when we're like excited and um, feeling really full, feeling attractive, feeling confident. And that kind of eroticism is so creative. It's so generative. And if it's coming from a really healthy place, that can be a really exciting community. Um, and communities that have a healthy kind of erotic energy. I don't know if I've ever actually been in one, maybe smaller intentional communities, definitely um, in my experience, certain queer communities where there's a lot of intentionality around um, body acceptance and body celebration. I've felt that. Um, I have not felt that in a larger kind of societal sense, but I have a fantasy that it could exist. Now, in the detriment of these two signs, uh, the detriment of Leo, we've all heard about Leo being a sign that can be very arrogant, um, self-centered, entitled, and I think supremacist. And that's a word that, especially today, uh, is a really important word and uh, definitely something that's coming out in our culture. And I think one of the themes of this full moon is entitled supremacy. And the detriment then in Aquarius will be uh, the group mind following charismatic leaders, or it will be the group organizing around supremacy and the indi in 
the ideas of entitlement. Um, we have like the unthinking collective, the followers, or we have Aquarius as a sign of fixed thought forms, creating rigid structures around individual expression or individual freedom. There's repression of the individual and glorification of the supremacist ego. Um, so when I'm looking at the chart for this full moon, uh, you might guess what I'm thinking about. I mean, definitely the news of the last m months, um, but particularly these last couple of weeks with a lot of white supremacy um, creating terror, terrorism in the world and especially in the United States where there have been several mass shootings and where the president and um, the government of the United States is looking more and more like Nazi Germany. I mean, rounding people up, keeping them in prisons and encampments, um, being responsible for the deaths of many people, separating children and parents, and really subjecting uh, people to pretty uh, extreme abuse. And this to me feels like really the dark side of Leo and Aquarius. We have a very charismatic leader. Donald Trump has uh, a Leo rising sign. And in a lot of ways, he really embodies, I think, the more putrid qualities of Leo, this kind of entitlement and grandeur and royalty. And he's always got to be right. And it's always his way. And, um, you know, he's <laughs> the boss, the number one, this kind of thing. Um, and then his minions, um, his base. And I'm saying that, you know, trying to be compassionate, but also thinking a lot about like the evangelical right and a kind of fixed thinking around what um, people need to do and who people need to be and this repression of individuality in a lot of ways, even um, while there's this rallying cry around, uh, individual freedoms. It seems like the cost of those individual freedoms are really the cost of freedom for most people. With the full moon, both the, the Leo placements and the Aquarius moon are exactly square to an asteroid called Vesta. Um, I'm going to talk a lot more about Vesta in a few weeks when I release Virgo season. I associate Vesta quite strongly to Virgo. Um, but Vesta is at 22 degrees of Taurus. The sun is at 22 Leo. The moon is at 22 Aquarius. And um, Vesta is really associated to a, a kind of service that is a devotional service. And I think of the service as bhakti. It's kind of the, the way we might put ourselves in, into service because that in itself is exalting. And so there's nothing else we'd rather do than serve um, something. And what Vesta served as the, the goddess that uh, Vesta pertains to is the sacred fire. So um, Vesta is the goddess of the hearth. And her priestesses, um, the Vestal Virgins, were priestesses who attended the sacred flame at the center of a city. They were called virgins, but they had sex. They were just unmarried. So they were considered to be virgins. They owned themselves, but they did engage with eroticism and sexuality to tend to the sacred fire, the sacred flame in the center of each person. And particularly these priestesses would serve warriors coming back from battle who were suffering from trauma because war is traumatizing. 
and uh, how they, one of the ways that they would help warriors come back into their bodies is through eroticism and through embodiment. And Vesta is associated to a kind of facilitation of transformation and healing. So these priestesses, uh, you could think of them in some ways um, as doulas, perhaps, as um, you know, the word doula means servant to serve. So we become facilitators and agents of transformation, and there's a sacred service to this flame, the centrality. And to me, that goes right back into Leo and the idea of, of exalted Leo being this flame right at the center. Now, because there's an opposition and both points of the opposition are forming a square, this aspect pattern is called a T-square. And uh, in astrological methodology, the T-square is considered to be a really tense aspect pattern. So the, the tension of the opposition gets shuttled off onto this third point. And squares are, are really challenging. And since Vesta is in Taurus, you know, the way that I'm reading this right now is really thinking about the transformation of Earth that we're going through, particularly in relationship to these themes of Leo and Aquarius, these themes of entitlement and supremacy that create communities and cultures of people that are um, really entitled in their consumption habits that uh, have to follow or, you know, Really, it feels like we have no choice uh, but to live into these kind of supremacist ideologies, whether the supremacy is just human supremacy, like uh, we have dominion over land and the animals and all the resources, or whether it's white supremacy living in cultures that continue to uphold white privilege at the cost and detriment of the well-being and the life and the access to resources for non-white people, whether it's male supremacy, um, pretty much the entire world world is functioning in patriarchy. Um, so there's this kind of supremacist entitlement that I think is pretty um, sim sim symbolic, a, a signature of this era right now. And that kind of mindset really reduces actual creativity. So we have this kind of like dead-end, uncreative group mentality functioning around capitalism, functioning around scarcity, um, which are, of course, created by and then maintaining supremacy of whatever the dominant groups are. Um, but here we are at this pretty profound changing point. And I think at this point, most people, anybody who's paying attention uh, is seeing we have to change and that's really the name of the game right now we're either going to transform or we are going to perish um as individuals of course we're going to die but if the human species is going to continue we really have to figure out how to transform and how to move into some other way of operating here on this planet because what we're doing is not working um species are dying People are dying. This is the hottest year on record. There are wildfires burning hundreds of thousands of acres in the Arctic. Um, the oceans are dying. You know, this is these are extreme times. We've passed the tipping point. There's no going back. We have to transform. And that's really the only way. So 
here we have this full moon with this tension between the self, the self expressing itself, um, the self either being in a heart space that can work in collaboration with community, that can be part of community, collective, or we have the entitled separate egoistic self that functions with the group thought. And that tension of the opposition then gets pushed onto Vesta and Taurus. Will we transform? Now, to go back to this astrological methodology, to understand how a T-square can um, move, we want to look at the opposite point to the square. The opposite point is 22 degrees of Scorpio. There is no planet there, no planets in Scorpio um, in this chart. So we really want to inquire, well, what is this degree point of 22 degrees of Scorpio? Now, Scorpio, of course, is the sign that symbolizes shadow. It's where we hide things. It's where we suppress and repress. It has to do with taboo and entanglements and attachments. And Scorpio specifically relates to issues of power and the way that power can um, be manipulative or the way that power can grasp. Scorpio specifically is associated to wealth and to the accumulation of wealth. Scorpio specifically is related to sex and to the ways that sex can uh, entangle and ensnare and catch us emotionally or can empower us and fill us with erotic energy. So when I look at this chart and I look down at Scorpio, I'm like, okay, here we are at this tipping point. What are we going to do? We have to transform. In order to transform, we really need to dig deep. Scorpio is an incredibly psychological sign, the most psychological of all the signs. We have to dig deep. We have to dig into the shadow. We have to go way back into the depths of the closet and figure out what we are hiding from in ourselves. Stop projecting it outwards, but really look uh, into, into ourselves. How have we been um, internalizing narratives around our own erotic energy? I think that this is one of the ways we're going to transform is to actually uh, build our erotic energy and to reclaim sex as sacred. Um, one of the quickest ways to control people is to cut them off from their eroticism. And we cut them off, we, cut, we get cut off through guilt and through fear. And if I think about what's happening globally and culturally and the way that, uh, you know, war and religion have really shaped our current era, and neither war nor religion, any of the dominant religions, I think, uh, none of them are celebrating sex. And, and being in the body. There's the use of rape as a weapon of war. There's really fucked up sex stories in the Catholic Church, and I'm sure a lot of other uh, religions where sexuality is taboo. Um, and that just leads to more of this really sick uh, and entitled and messy behavior. So I looked at one of my favorite... Um, I don't know what to call him. I mean, he's an astrologer, but I really think he's a channel. Someone named Elias Lonsdale, who has written, um, who, who has kind of channeled meanings for all of the degree points in the zodiac. And I want to read you the description for Scorpio 22. So the title is A Rug Woven Out of Rags. 
You take everything you experience in all its roughage, just as it is, and you form a vessel that is hardy and strong and enduring, and you put all of yourself into it. You leave nothing out. With fervor and intent, you put in there all the darkness and every difficult emotion you have got. For you are the quintessential example of what it has been like around here and how it feels. The collective karmas choose carefully those who can merge with what everybody is going through and by sheer guts take it further, perhaps towards mutational breakthrough. To qualify, you have to grind yourself to bits with rude honesty, even at your own expense. Because this is how it is, no shortcuts, no easy answers. Emotionally, this is the depth experience at its most intense. But there is an evolutionary drive of overwhelming power pushing you through the worst, and along this pathway you will definitely find out what you are made of and what has been stopping everybody and whether you have it in you to start things off again in a different direction in the earth crucible with no place to hide. Well... I always kind of have this experience when I read his writing and I don't look all the time for every degree point, but there are certain times that I really feel like, okay, I'm going to check in with Elias. And, uh, this full moon chart was one of them looking at Scorpio 22, wondering what does this mean? Um, so yeah, to do this transformation, the people are going to need to lead. We can't wait for charismatic leaders to do it for us. We can support creative, charismatic leaders who are carrying our vision and our message, but we can't wait for them. We need to empower ourselves and each other through our hearts uh, if we want to midwife or foster or attend to this transformation. And in order to do that, we have to attend to the sacred flame of the heart. So how do we do that? What do we do now? Um, Full moons ask us to pay attention and to reflect. And so with this particular full moon reflecting the light of Leo, um, how are you using your expression? Where is it coming from? You know, what are you committed to? What are you mobilizing for? What do you love? The planets in Leo or the sun is conjunct to Venus and Mars in Leo and uh, the asteroid Juno. So we have these questions. What are you committed to with Juno? What will you mobilize for with Mars? And what do you love with Venus? Um, That should form your expression. And that is also probably what's forming the expression, I have to say, of uh, these white supremacist terrorists. I do believe that they are very convicted and very passionate about what it is that they are expressing. But when we consider the balance between Leo and Aquarius, one question, how are you taking up space with this Leo energy? How are you taking up space? Are you a person who is entitled to a lot of space? Um, If you're a white person, especially if you're a white male person, if you're a white able-bodied person, if you're a white person with money, um, you're probably just naturally feeling like there's more space to take up. Um, I know that for me as a white woman, as an able-bodied woman, it's like I continue to learn all the time. Like I don't always have the answers. I need to listen. I need to just show up and listen. And so a lot of my expression more and more, I feel like if I'm going to take up space on a platform like this, I want to use it to elevate the voices of my friends, of my community, um, to speak out about the things that I think are important. I know not everybody wants to tune into an astrology podcast and listen to someone talk about politics for a while, and that's fine. There are plenty of other astrology podcasts out there. But if this is the space I'm going to take up, I'm going to use it to actually speak to what I care about and not try and uh, cater to the group. Um, 
find ways to give and support community. Work together. We've got to work with the people. Together, we're going to form our answers so we can think about community solutions. I'm pretty excited about the potential of the internet and sharing platforms um, to actually share, not to monetize, but how can we use these tools to share? We actually, I think, uh, for the most part, have the resources that we need amongst our own communities. If we would stop monetizing them and get, you know, giving our bucks to Airbnb or Amazon or whatever, we could use these tools to just share, to not exploit each other, not get a leg up, but actually just to give each other what we need. Um, There's a lot of community-supported initiatives, gardens, education, beekeeping, etc., transportation. How do we get involved? Go ahead, get involved, try and find some way to do it. Reparation, I think, is something that we can really think of, especially with um, this kind of arrow pointing to 22 Scorpio and this idea of wealth being part of the shadow. There's a lot of people talking about reparations right now. Um, I'm really in a space of learning about them. I don't have any formed thoughts about how to do it or what what they are. Um, So questions I'm asking myself right now is like, what do I actually make? And I think that this is a really worthwhile question right now. If you know, if you're working with your own resources. Like what are you bringing in and what are you using and what do you actually need? And from there, what can be shared and where can I take less so that others can have more, you know, I'm receiving, uh, in my life. And does that give me entitlement to just have more and more and more, or the more that I receive, the more, uh, I should share. And that's one of the things that I'm thinking about. And I would just really encourage, everybody out there to just talk about reparations. I feel like this is um, something that a lot of people are learning about, especially, um, I don't, I could say especially white people, but I don't actually know if that's true, especially white people. I think we're all learning about it. We're all trying to figure out what it would look like logistically, practically, and how we can engage with it. So let's talk about it. Um, We can try and be less entitled consumers, you know, try and use less fossil fuel take the bus a little bit more, ride your bike a little bit more, um, buy local, use less plastic, less packaging, remember thriftiness, you know, like resources are precious. So let's use what we have and, um, be resourceful. And what else? We can support youth leadership. There's so much amazing mobilization with youth environmentalists right now. Support indigenous leadership. I think indigenous communities have been stewards of the land forever. And a lot of indigenous communities are doing the work of taking care of land and water, uh, oftentimes um, without really any support from, you know, the government or banks or whatever. And so uh, look around your community. You don't need to look far probably to find the folks who are taking care of your community and take care of them um, in whatever ways you can. Uh, Feminist leadership, you know, give money, time, uh, space to people who are really thinking through an intersectional lens and um, working towards actual equality. And finally, do the work. Let's look at our shadows around wealth, around power, around sex. Um, Let's not be scared of it anymore. We have to transform. This is the moment. Now is the time. Okay, so that is it for my full moon um, ramble. Uh, I am going to take a quick pause, and then I will be back for the Q&A. 
Hey everyone, I want to let you know about a really special upcoming opportunity to go deeper with embodied astrology and to hang out with me. September 29th through October 2nd, I'll be offering a three-day retreat in Southern Washington. This retreat is called Expansive Alignment, and we'll be working specifically with the energy of Jupiter. Jupiter in astrology is sometimes called the guru or the supreme teacher. It is the point in astrology that tells us about our gifts, where we want to grow and expand, and our wisdom. Jupiter next year will be transiting through the sign Capricorn, and as it transits Capricorn, it's going to set off the Saturn-Pluto conjunction, which is exact in January, and it will work through a trine that's a lending influence with Uranus and Taurus. 2020 is looking like it's going to be a really huge year. There's a lot of very profound energetic shifting that people are doing, a lot of changing. And I think a lot of folks are really recognizing that now is the time to use their gifts. Now is the time to open their minds. Now is the time to seek their truths. And that is what we will be doing in this retreat. Every single day, we're going to be working with the astrology of Jupiter and Capricorn. You'll learn through your own chart about your natal placements and how the transit will affect you. We'll also be working with embodiment every day. You're going to be in your body, walking on the beach, moving, meditating, breathing, um, doing creative practices. You'll be hanging out with awesome people using the sauna and eating delicious food. Um, this retreat takes place at the Southwester Lodge. This is a really beautiful, interesting space in Southern Washington. It's a queer female run space. It is a historic lodge and vintage travel trailer hotel. So you can stay in the lodge where accommodations begin, I think at $30 a night for a shared room. And it's a little bit more to get a travel trailer, but a lot of them will sleep up to three people. And the charge is not per person, it's per room. So I think that comparatively, as far as retreats go, this one is pretty financially accessible. There are scholarships available for queer, trans, non-binary folks and BIPOC folks. Um, so please apply for them. Just write to me if you want to access some of the scholarship and please come if you want to work with your own astrology and learn more about embodied astrology and work with the amazing influences of 2020. You can find more information on my website. Go to play and learn and then click on live events and you'll find all the info there. You can also click the link in the show notes and that'll take you to the webpage where you can find out more and register. All right, so welcome back to the q and I'm excited, as I said, to do this episode with the q and I got a bunch of questions. Uh, people submitted questions by voice and voice messages. They sent me emails. They wrote to me on Instagram. And if you want to connect with me, you can do so in all of those ways as well. Uh, all the links are in the show notes. And let's see, what else do I want to tell you? The way that I've organized this Q&A, I hope, is um, in a good flow. I tried to organize the question so that one would lead to the next, naturally. And we're going to lead up to um, a little kind of mini chart reading at the end. So the first question is a voice message from Kitty in Texas. Hi, Renee. This is Kitty in Texas. 
Uh, I have two related questions that, and happy Leo season, are about you as the brilliant being behind this body of work. First, not long ago, you mentioned briefly in the podcast uh, that you feel the chart as a body, and I've been curious about that ever since. Um, what does that mean? How do you experience it? How does it inform your astrology practice? Tell us more. Uh, second, I've been listening for a couple of years now, and in that time I've noticed some experimentation and evolution in the ways you talk about your intuition and about yourself as an intuitive person. It seems like there have been some meaningful changes in the way you relate to this topic publicly. Uh, what has that looked like and felt like behind the scenes? Thanks, Renee. All right. Well, thanks, Kitty and Texas, for submitting this question. Um, I wanted to start off with it because I think it's a great question to begin with, and it will lay a foundation for the answers to my other questions. So the first question, I mentioned that I feel the chart as a body. Yes, this is true. Um, Coming from a somatic background and being a person who uh, has really spent a lot of time kind of thinking about the human experience as an embodied experience, so not necessarily just what we're thinking about or how we're identifying, but really what's happening in the body as a somatic experience in relationship to all the thoughts and the identifications, etc., Um, When I read astrology, which is such a wonderful tool for psychological insight, I immediately relate uh, whatever the the theme is, the relationship, the life experience, um, these particular kinds of needs or motivations with the body. Um, when I look at a chart, the chart, a Western chart, I should say, I read tropical astrology, which is a Western system. And, um, the way that the chart wheel is designed is in a circle and that circle is divided into 12 pieces. There are six pieces below and six pieces above. Now the, the lower hemisphere, these lower six houses, houses one through six, um, are related to our personal lives and in some ways our kind of foundational experiences. And for me in the body, these very personal foundational experiences have a lot to do with the lower chakras, the first through third chakras. Um, The chakra system is an esoteric system related to Ayurveda and yoga. And that was, uh, yoga was one of my kind of initial long-term trainings. And if you just think of these uh, places in the body as energy centers, the lower body is very much related to security, foundation, home, stability, um, creative energy, family, anchor, this kind of thing. And then in the upper hemisphere, uh, in a chart, we have relationships. We have um, the ways that we are moving out into the external world and kind of creating in the world. And for me, this part of the chart relates to the upper body and the upper energy centers where we come into relationship with other beings, where we use our voice, where we connect to the spiritual realm or to the mental realm, etc., as a dancer and as a movement artist, um, I think about kind of the, the kinesthetic movement of a chart a lot. When I read aspects, I'm always thinking about positioning, positionality, and the dynamic tension of the aspects, how we are in relationship or how one planet is in relationship to another. And you're going to hear me talk about that in some of the questions upcoming. 
And then finally, I've studied medical astrology for quite a while. I am not a medical astrologer. I just want to say that the people who I really look up to as medical astrologers um, have been studying for a very long time, and they really are committed to, to knowing it as an art. So I study medical astrology, and I'm inspired by it, and I take a lot from it. And in the system of medical astrology, every planet and every sign is associated to uh, body parts and to physiological functions and anatomical systems, etc. So when you hear me say like, oh, Aquarius relates to the nervous system and Leo rules the heart, that's coming from the medical astrology system. So when I read a chart, I am thinking a lot about the body. And into the second part of your question, Kitty, um, how I've been talking about kind of evolving my language around what I do. That's a great question. Thank you for seeing me there. I feel so seen. Um, This has been a really recent, I would say in the last two years or so, recognition um, that I'm not just a person who reads maps. Uh, I love making sense out of things. Um, I can absorb a lot of information and I have a, a quick kind of associative mind, but I'm an intuitive. And I think that any diviner, any person who's working in the occult with divination is working with their intuition. And to say otherwise um, tries to put something into the realm of science. And astrology is not science. It is an intuitive practice and it's an observational practice that helps us connect to our own inner knowing. I believe that the astrology chart is a way for me to reach into and sense into our connective field, the place where my energy knows your energy. Even if you're across the planet, even if you are dead, um, even if you are someone that I've never met, there's some way that my energy knows your energy because we come from the same thing. We are in this terrestrial realm, which is a a constant kind of recycling and evolution of materials. And I truly believe in a, a kind of etheric plane where all knowledge is at any given time. So I am learning about myself that I have a very strong intuition that my intuition primarily comes through my body. You might call this uh, sensate intuitive or um, what's the word I'm looking for? Clairsentience, um, someone who yeah, feels things through their body. When I look at a chart, when I'm working with clients, I get very distinct impressions in my body. So I'll look at something my mind will associate to what I know about you know, the, the chart, the medical association, its location or the physicality, um, that I might think about. And then my body will respond in a way that I can only describe as intuitive. And the, uh, the feeling that I get will be quite nuanced. So often, you know, I might look at something and I'll go, Oh, that relates to this thing. This is this position. But then the feeling I get in my body is quite, um, specific and subtle. And it's like, oh, this is the sensation that's happening right here. It's in relationship to this kind of person or this kind of experience. 
I think that intuition is something that everybody has. I don't think that I am particularly special in this way. I think that I've been really supported in my life to believe in my own intuition and to be curious about the occult. But I think that symbolism is everywhere. And I actually think that humans know how to live in a state of um, awareness and conversation with the natural world and that we can get messages all the time. And like I was talking about with my cat over the last few months, I feel like I've really been opening up my psychic channels to um, receive information from her and to communicate with her. And I think that we can all do this. And I guess that's the best answer that I have for today for your question. I'm sure my answer will continue to, to evolve. And I hope that that answer is helpful now as we get into these next questions. Uh, so I'm going to include one more voice message that I got from Kelly. Good morning, Renee. This is Kelly. Um, I have a question regarding listening to the different horoscopes based on the signs, um, the difference between the sun and the rising sign. So when I was listening to my rising sign, which is Capricorn, you mentioned that the solar placement for that is, I think you said, in the sixth house um, of where the transits were happening. And I wondered when you said solar placement, is that information just for people um, that it's their sun sign, period, um, I don't know what just said period since I'm recording, um, but I hope that question makes sense. So basically, does that information apply to people who are also listening to that horoscope for their rising or moon sign? Thank okay, that last little bit of Kelly's message got cut off. Um, thank you, Kelly, for that question. It's such a great question, and I think one that a lot of people have. I've gotten emails about this question um, a lot. So... The question that you're asking has two parts to its answer. Um, the first, uh, and they, they could probably go in either order. Um, so the first part that I'm going to answer has to do with house systems. Um, as I mentioned before, when I'm thinking about an astrology chart and I'm kind of looking at the shape of an astrology chart as a circle, that circle is divided into 12 pieces, like 12 pieces of pie. And there are different ways to read these pieces, and the different ways are called house systems. There are several house systems in tropical astrology. I predominantly use two. Um, one of them is called Placidus, and one of them is called Whole Signs. So the difference between Placidus and Whole Signs has to do with the placement of the zodiac signs in the houses. Let me take a quick aside and say that when you're reading a chart, there are three main, maybe four main, four main things you're looking at. So the first thing uh, will be, these could go in, in any order, by the way, um, the houses. So the houses, again, are these pie pieces, and they tell you where something is happening. So it's the way that astrologers divide the sky or divide the chart wheel, which is representative of the sky into areas of life. For example, in the first house, we have 
your personality, your identity. In the sixth house, we have your labor, your health, your jobs. Uh, in the ninth house, we have your um, big questions about life and your you know, experience at college or something like that. So the houses are dividing the sky into areas of life. Then we have the zodiac signs, and the zodiac signs go around the houses. And the zodiac signs are qualities. So we might say that Aries brings a quality of um, determination and courage, and that Aquarius brings a quality of objectivity and um, insight. The way that the signs work with the houses will change depending on the house system. So with whole sign houses, whatever... Uh, sign is on the cusp or the beginning of the first house, and that is your ascendant sign. And what the ascendant is, is what light is rising on the easternmost ascendant or horizon at the time and the place that you are born. So this is why you need to know your birth time is because the earth turns one full rotation on its axis once a day. And the light that's coming up on the easternmost ascendant or horizon changes every couple of hours. Um, so whatever that light is, whatever that sign is, uh, is the sign that rules the ascendant or your rising sign. In a Placidus system, that sign will be placed in relationship to the house at its degree. So for example, if I was born with a Taurus rising, but I was right at the end of Taurus rising and it was about to go into Gemini, let's say my degree point is like 24 Taurus, there are 30 degrees to every sign. Um, in the Placidus system, I would have those last six degrees in my first house, and then my first house would also include Gemini. But in the whole sign system, Whatever the sign is that's on the cusp of the first house, whatever the rising sign is, is going to take the whole first house. So that means that all 30 degrees of Taurus fill the first house, and the first house is an equal size to the second house, and Gemini takes all of the second house, and then Cancer takes all of the third house, Leo takes all of the fourth house, etc. So there are 12 signs and 12 houses. Um, so that's an important thing to know because when you're listening to horoscopes or reading them, your astrologer is making generalizations and she is speaking to an infinite unknown amount of people, a large amount of people and dividing all of those people into 12 different types and if you really want to know what's going on in your astrology, nothing beats an actual astrology chart reading where you can get into the nuance of your chart. What horoscopes do is they generalize around something. And so the second part of your question, Kelly, and the second part of this answer has to do with um, the difference between the ascendant and the sun sign when we're creating horoscopes. So a lot of people don't know what time they were born. They don't know their rising sign. 
And therefore, sun sign astrology has become kind of the dominant Western astrology. What sign are you? Oh, I was born in March. I'm an Aries or Pisces or whatever. Um, So for sun sign astrology, what astrologers do is place the sun sign as the ruler of the first house. So we could say... If you are a Leo person, you're born in the season of Leo, you're going to read the Leo horoscope and we're going to claim Leo as the identity for you because the first house has to do with your identity. And the sun in Western astrology has a lot to do with the self and what we're here for. As I was talking about with um, this full moon, with Leo being ruled by the sun. Now, whatever it is that your sun sign is, is going to go in that place of identity when you check in with a horoscope. Now, more and more people are getting savvy to astrology. More and more people are learning their rising sign. This is like the meme or the joke for millennials, like calling up mom and being like, what time was I born? Um, Because that's why you want to know so you can get your rising sign. If you are a Leo sun person, say you're born in early August but you were born at night, you might have like a Capricorn or Aquarius rising. And that will really change the shape of your chart. So it'll put Aquarius in your first house instead of Leo or Capricorn in your first house instead of Leo. And then the sky as it's divided is going to get different qualities in it. Now to go back to this thing I was saying, there are four things that you look at when you read a chart. So we've got the houses, we've got the signs, and then we have planets and the planets are like characters. So right now the sun is in Leo and it's expressing, it's expressing, it's expressing. For a person with Leo rising, this might be a time when you're like, it's all about me. I'm learning a lot about me. I really need to express myself. Say for a person with Aquarius rising, it's going to put Leo in your seventh house, which is the house of partners. And you might be having a lot of experiences, even though you're a Leo and it's Leo season, you might be having a lot of experiences with partners that are being really expressive or where you're finding that you want to express yourself in your partnerships or something like this. Um, so the difference between the rising sign and the sun sign is a difference of location and where signs and then therefore the planets that are moving through the signs are acting in your chart. Now, Kelly mentioned how is this different for the moon sign. Um, So because everybody has every sign and every planet in their chart, you can theoretically get a whole lot of information from every sign. And you might, if you're into your own astrology, you can look at your own chart and go, okay, I want to know something about, um, you know, my emotional reality right now and what's going on in my family. And so then you might listen for your moon sign. The moon has a lot to do with our subjective awareness and how we feel nurtured and safe in the world. You're going, oh, I really want to know about my love life. So listen for your Venus sign. You can listen to the horoscopes for your houses. So say you have uh, a lot of questions about your third house. You have Sagittarius in the third house. So go and listen to the Sagittarius horoscope and then think about your third house themes. That's a fairly uh, 
sophisticated answer, or maybe that's the wrong word, but that's an answer that um, is using a lot of words about astrology that you may or may not know. So I want to take a minute to just make a plug for a little pamphlet that I sell on my website. Um, It's like Embodied Astrology Basics. And you can download it and you can get a lot of information about all of these words that I was just saying and what they mean and how to think about them in spatial kind of embodied ways. And then also keep an eye ear out next year, 2020, I'll start to offer some basics classes and a study group online. So if you're interested in learning more about how astrology works, I would love to work with you. And Kelly, I hope that answered your question. And such a good question because it's really setting us up for the next question from Camille. Camille writes, I have a hard time understanding how certain aspects affect us in a concrete manner, such as squares and oppositions. I was wondering if you could give an example of those energies in an embodied way. I find it really helpful when you explain how certain energies and the action of planets can be experienced or felt in the body. So, for instance, how does an opposition between Mars and Pluto translate in an embodied experience? Awesome. Okay, so let's go back to this idea of the chart as um, a, a spatial kind of configuration. Let's bring in this idea of a circle. And then imagine you're standing in a circle. You've got a big circle of people. Say there's like, I don't know, 360 people in this circle or 30, whatever. Big circle. Place yourself somewhere in it and now look directly across. And the person who is exactly across from you is your opposite. And an opposition is a polarity. So it is an axis of relationship. And in an opposition, we have kind of a magnetic charge. So we can be both repelled and attracted. Uh, A polarity can be a really dynamic kind of configuration. We're looking at this other person dead on. They're looking at us dead on. We can't get away. They can, you know, we see each other fully. And in that seeing each other fully, there can be an illumination or a revelation. There can also be a conflict um, in terms of an oppositional force. So think about that and then shift an attention, shift your attention to um, someone who's exactly 90 degrees in the circle from you. So they're at a square angle. Think about a square angle. It's a 90 degree angle. So that person, there's a kind of uh, particular tension. You really have to turn your head to look at them. You're going to have to really change if you want to get a good look at them. You're not going to really get a view that feels complete. It's going to be a little bit one-sided. And if you both were to walk forwards until you met at the center of the circle and say you're both walking with equal and um, you know just the same kind of momentum, where you meet in that center, you're going to really get into a challenge point because you're both going to be pushing in totally different directions. You're going to be following your path. That other person's going to be following their path and you're going to get to an impasse. And that is the energy of a square. It's where we meet something and it feels really tense and we have to grapple with it and we have to fight with it. And um, a square is a very stable configuration. If you think about like a table or something, but if it breaks, you know, if the tension breaks it, that, that can create a kind of breakdown. And so squares can be really hard experiences. Um, but 
a lot of tension can also strengthen both sides. And that's where squares actually help us build our resilience. So for instance, um, to speak to Camille's question, how does an opposition between Mars and Pluto translate in an embodied experience? So we'd want to take this imagination of this embodiment and then bring in the characters of the planets. Mars is a character that we could describe as forceful, um, as a warrior, as a really heating, energizing, potentially aggressive kind of character. Pluto and its association, we might think of Pluto as the god of death and transformation, you know, as like maybe the grim reaper or as the composting mechanism. And the warrior is going to have to face off with this force of death. So with an opposition between Mars and Pluto, there are a couple of different ways we could go. If we imagine this aggressive warrior, uh, this willful power, kind of looking at this transformational killing force. Now, one way this could go is into something that is really violent, really destructive, where the killing force meets the warrior uh, in a way that kind of consumes it. And that's all that the warrior can see is this killing force. And it's either going to fight it or it's going to kind of identify with it. Uh, another way that this could go is the warrior energy being transformed by the, the killing force, kind of having a, a reckoning where it's like life is precious. Life is only um, a temporary experience. What do I really want to fight for? What do I really want to motivate for? And an opposition between Mars and Pluto in a personal chart is really going to ask someone to use their power consciously and to investigate the kind of deeper, more repressive, regressed instincts that they have around power. Um, so that's the answer that I have. I hope that is helpful. What I would say is for those of you that are playing with embodied astrology, uh, play with the characters of the planets. They all have such, there's such amazing evocative descriptions of characters that we all have in ourselves. Like we all have a warrior. We all have like a malefic kind of like, uh, you know, bad, baddie, bad guy. Like we're all capable of that. So when does that element come out? in your embodied experience. And then you can imagine these aspect patterns as um, ways that your inner collective, um, these, these characters inside of you, are relating to each other. Okay, next question is from Jesse. Jesse writes, I'm a Virgo Libra cusp. Their birthday is on September 22nd. I experience my cusping as a beautiful, lucky thing and take a fluid approach to both sun signs being activated. I wonder how you regard cusps in your embodied research and practice. Well, Jesse, I really agree with you and I love that you're taking a fluid approach um, and that you're regarding your cusping as a beautiful, lucky thing because I definitely think that it is. Astrology is a gradient. I think that the wheel of the zodiac describes um, the wheel of the year in terms of the light. So we have a different quality of light in Leo season than we do in, in Aquarius season, for example. And when two signs are next to each other, such as Virgo and Libra, there's a shifting of light. 
and the shifting of light from Virgo season, which is the end of summer into Libra season, which is the beginning of autumn, is a shifting in the quality of air. It's the shifting in the colors that you're going to see in nature. Different animals and insects will be predominant. Different foods uh, are going to be kind of in season. Um, If we think into our kind of cultural experiences, uh, there, there are different experiences that we have at different times of year. So in the gradient, in the space between one sign and another, we have a a shifting. And within each sign, there's actually a gradient. Um, And so you can think of the signs as having a beginning, middle, and an end. Um, Every zodiac sign has 30 degrees. And so if you divide 30 into 3, then you have the first, middle, and uh, last 10 degrees. And these are called deacons in astrology. So if you're born in the first 10 days of a sign, then you're in the first deacon. If you're born in the second 10 days, then you're in the second deacon, etc. And the deacons are a beginning, middle, and end. So in the beginning of a sign, we have the sign kind of moving into itself. It's figuring out how to be itself. It's wondering what it is. Um, It might manifest with a lot of qualities of the previous sign or in some kind of balance or like um, interpermeating of them. And in the very middle of a sign, you'll have the sign really expressing its full force, um, its, its assertion, its kind of deepest uh, message or deepest need. And then at the end of the sign, we have the sign integrating, really learning what it is, manifesting what it is, and then asking the next question, kind of getting ready to move into the next energy. So people who are cuspers are people who are in this conversation in um, energy as it shifts, but also we are all existing on the gradient. And so this is where degree points get really interesting. And I would um, recommend that you check out Elias Lonsdale, E-L-I-A-S is his first name. And the last name is Lonsdale, L-O-N-S-D-A-L-E. And if you search, if you Google search um, Elias Lonsdale degree points, you'll find um, the, the kind of free online PDF and it's a really amazing kind of trippy experience to read his descriptions for every degree point, but it's a wonderful study. Um, and then Dane Rudyard also has um, a book that I'm forgetting the name of right now, but it's uh, it's a, a mandala. <sighs> mandala is in the title. I forget the entire title. Um, and he, an astrological mandala easy. So um, in that book, he gives the the degree points for um, the entire zodiac. They're also called Sabian symbols, S-A-B-I-A-N. And you can learn a lot about how the signs evolve um, in themselves and then from one into another. Kim uh, writes in with a question. I have about excuse me, I have a question about when a planet moves into a new sign. In your horoscopes, you have us read the energy as affecting the house cusp associated with that sign in our charts. But I'm wondering if that applies immediately after the planet moves into the sign, because for example, Uranus has moved into Taurus, which affects my eighth house cusp, but it's at the moment, it's still technically in my seventh house. So I'm unsure how to interpret it right now until it goes fully into my eighth house. 
All right, so this is another cusp question. And rather than the cusps between the signs, Kim's question is actually about the cusp uh, between the houses and when the energy of one house shifts into the energy of the next house. And um, in Kim's question, I also know that Kim is using um, uh, a Placidus chart or maybe a cock chart. So they're not using whole signs. Um, because remember, with whole signs, if uh, Uranus has moved into Taurus, then it's already moved into the next house because one sign takes an entire house. And so Kim is saying that Uranus has moved into Taurus and they have Taurus on the cusp of their eighth house. But at the moment, Uranus is still technically in Kim's seventh house. So we know that Kim is not using whole sign houses. Um, so here's what I have to say to that question. Um, when a planet moves into a new sign, it affects that sign. And if you have that sign on the cusp of a house, then it's going to start to affect the uh, quality of that house. So already your eighth house is starting to feel the effects of Uranus's transit through Taurus. And one house follows the last and there's a gradient between the houses. So in this example, the gradient between the seventh house and the eighth house is um, the relationship uh, realm. So the seventh house, we have information about our relationships, particularly the agreements we make in a relationship, how we're going to get along. The seventh house has a lot to do with contracts and partnerships, but it is... Um, more of a conceptual house. Like this is what I believe I'm going to do in my relationship. And then the eighth house is actual intimacy. It's the shit that comes up in a relationship. It is the subtext of a relationship, the deeper emotional entanglements and complexities, and it's where our resources get shared. So just hearing this, you might recognize that there's a lot of back and forth between the seventh and the eighth house. They are going to lend to each other. It's not just a linear trajectory from one to the other. And if Uranus has been moving through Kim's seventh house for the last seven years or so, uh, that's about how long Uranus has been transiting uh, Aries, which is a sign before Taurus, then we know that Kim's relationships have already received the Uranian energy. So Uranus brings um, insight, awakening. It really wants change. It wants liberation. It wants freedom. So in Kim's concept of relationship and the way that they're entering into relationship and maybe the partners that they're choosing or the agreements that they're making with their partners, Uranus has already been uh, influencing. And now as Uranus starts to move into Taurus and affect Kim's eighth house, these needs for liberation and awakening and change are going to come into a deeper kind of psychology in Kim's being. And beyond the kind of conceptual, more surface level um, agreements in relationship, now Kim's really going to have to grapple with the emotional shifts that need to happen. They're going to have to kind of dig deep into their own psychology. They're going to have to unwind and untie any um, really complicated entanglements in order so that they can kind of achieve this freedom. Now, pay attention to when Uranus crosses the actual degree, the cusp of your eighth house. And if you have any planets in your eighth house, especially as Uranus um, gets into orb, that means within five degrees, um, then you'll really start to feel the effects. And also if you have other planets or points 
um, in the other fixed signs. Taurus is a fixed sign. Um, the other signs in the fixed cross include Taurus's opposite sign, Scorpio, and then Leo and Aquarius. So if you have any planets in those signs, Uranus will be at hard angle to them. Hard aspect is an opposition or a square. And as I just answered in Camille's question, uh, oppositions and square brings a lot of tension to them. So th these will be times when you'll probably really notice that Uranian energy and feel it kind of shaking things up. So my answer is, um, you know, as soon as a planet moves into a new sign, that sign gets affected, but the acute feeling of a planet's transit is going to happen when that planet is transiting over an exact point. Um, yeah, hope that helps. Uh, okay. From Sawyer Bird on Instagram, uh, any thoughts on the Uranus opposition? And this person is going through their Uranus opposition and they're wondering what I was thinking about. So the Uranus opposition is something that happens to everybody if they live into their 40s. And it's similar to a Saturn return. It's a period of time that has to do with cognitive, emotional, and physical development in the life cycle. Um, Uranus has an 84 year orbit around the sun and when it opposes its own placement, it's halfway through its orbit. And when I say it opposes its own placement, I'm saying it opposes the placement of, uh, your natal Uranus. So when you were born where Uranus was in the sky, that's the natal placement. And about 40, 42 years after that, it's going to oppose, uh, that place. Uranus just entered Taurus, as we talked about with Kim's question, and so we know that Sawyer was born with Uranus and Scorpio, which is the opposite sign, and we know that Sawyer is somewhere in their early 40s, which is when the Uranus opposition happens. So if we go back to this earlier question around the embodiment of an opposition, what does an opposition bring? Well, it brings a kind of polarity, but it really brings a recognition. You know, when we're looking at something, we're confronting something head on. Uranus as a planetary influence in its exalted state wants liberation. It wants us to know our own inherent freedom. And our own inherent freedom is not like, okay, I can do absolutely anything with no consequences. It is, I am free to think and feel outside of the confinement of programming. Um, Uranus is one of the forces that helps us to wake up to our conditioning, to realize like, this is where I was internalizing and um, enacting, embodying my own oppression. And when the Uranus opposition happens, we often have this kind of reflection, this looking at ourselves and going, holy shit, I haven't been living my life. I've been following someone else's program. I've been doing something that I don't want to do. And in the early 40s, this is a, a period in life where we realize like, I'm just only going to get older from here. And the kind of feeling that comes up around the Uranus opposition is an urge for freedom. It might be a longing for youthfulness because many of us associate freedom with youth. Um, and this is the period of time when many people uh, will call it like a midlife crisis, you know, when people that have been married since they were 25 all of a sudden go, oh my God, I'm like a robot with my spouse and I'm going to go have an affair. 
or, uh, you know, someone who's just been like doing the thing and working the job. And then all of a sudden is like, I need a, a an adventure. I'm going to buy a fast car, you know, something like that. I would say these are more unevolved manifestations of the Uranus opposition. What I see over and over in my clients, um, which I'm super blessed and fortunate to be working with these kinds of people, I have so many clients that get into their 40s and they're fucking rocking. And this is the time when they get into, okay, this is the work that I'm here to do. This is what I really care about. Um, This is how I'm going to expand in my life. This is how I'm going to have fun. And they can let go of a lot of the bullshit conditioning that we walk around with in our teens, 20s, even 30s, where it's like, oh, I need to do this thing. I need to be what mommy wanted me to be. I got to follow this, you know, whatever script of the culture that I'm internalizing. I'm going to get married, do this, be this thing. And then you get into your 40s and you're like, I can do more than that. And I see this a lot in my clients. Um, I believe it was Rudolf Steiner, who is an anthroposophist and the person who founded Waldorf School, said that at 42 years old is when the soul fully incarnates. And I really resonate with that. And I can feel as I get closer to my Uranus opposition, which I'll have in a couple of years, um, this kind of growing sense of my own freedom, which is not, I can do anything with no consequences, but it's more like, I'm going to choose what I really care about. I don't have to get bogged down with stuff that honestly doesn't matter. Uranus wants awakening. It wants liberation. It wants, it wants freedom. And I think this is what the Uranus opposition can give us is um, perspective on our own mortality, perspective on our own agency, and access to liberation that only we can provide for ourselves. And again, that doesn't mean free to do whatever you want without any consequences. It means freedom from internalized oppression, freedom from the internalized narratives about how you are not free. So if you're in your Uranus opposition, or if you're approaching your Uranus opposition, um, maybe this is resonating. And then, um, of course, you're going to want to look at where it's happening, which house it's happening in, Um, these are going to be areas of life where you definitely, you're probably working for a certain kind of awakening and liberation. The sign that Uranus is in, um, you can think of as a generational placement. It takes about seven years to move through a sign. So good chances are you're working with your cohort. You're working with other people in, uh, their forties. There's some kind of awakening that's happening for your generation and the themes that are coming up generationally, what's coming up in culture is also facilitating um, your liberation or your perspective on your confinement, however that may go. All right. So the last question that I'm going to get to today is um, going to lead me into a little bit of a chart reading. And before I read the question, I'm just going to give a little bit of um, a preamble. So this question is submitted by someone that I don't know. I've never met them. And I do readings like this somewhat regularly. Um, Last year, I did a special where I offered, um, you know, year ahead reports that were half an hour just recorded. And I was reading charts for people that I haven't met. Um, Sometimes I do this. Sometimes I offer these kinds of specials and I just do a recording and I look at a chart and read it. I want to say 
that I don't know this person. And so I'm going to be speaking through the lens of my own experience and I'm making up stories. That's what I do as an astrologer is I look at a chart, I get a sensation in my body, and then I articulate that sensation. So for anybody listening, and especially for the person who submitted this question, and I'm going to keep your identity confidential, um, I really want to say, please check in with your own intuition. Anything that I offer is offered with the intent of your best benefit. If I say something that really doesn't resonate with you, know that your internal guide is your internal guide. Think about the things that I say and allow them to illuminate your own wisdom if they don't resonate for you completely. Anything that I say that really resonates, that works for you, take it. Anything that doesn't work, leave it. Astrology is not great for prescription, okay? I'm not here to tell you who you are or why you are the way that you are. Astrology, as far as I'm concerned, is also not great for prediction. I cannot tell you what's going to happen, but I can tell you what I see in terms of planetary influence and how you can work with those influences. And then finally, I just want to thank you for sending this question because your question is so personal. It's so vulnerable. And I think it's a really important question to bring in because it illuminates a lot. So I'm going to call this person A and A writes, does my life ever get better and away from constant crisis and poverty mode with any happiness or shelter relationship and income security, or does it stay the same? So this question is a really powerful question. And the first answer I have for you is I really don't know. Astrology is not prescriptive, it's not predictive, and it certainly isn't um, a way that we can explain disparity and inequity between people. I don't think astrology should be used for that. I don't think that that is what it's here for. The uh, way that I understand astrology is that we have to understand the chart within the embodied experience. The chart itself does not explain the embodied experience. We have to place the chart within your family of origin, within the culture that you come from, in the time, in the era, um, with your class privilege or income disparity, in your gender, in your race. So the way that a chart will manifest has everything to do with the contexts around the chart. And I don't know you. I don't know where you're coming from, and I don't know what your experiences have been. So in my answer and in my reading of your chart, again, please just take what works, leave the rest. Um, so I have this person's chart, and I'm going to take a look at it, and... Um, the first thing that I'm, I'm going to say is that this is a Capricorn rising person. So if you think back to when I was talking about the first house and what the rising sign is, we know that at the time and the place that they were born, the light of Capricorn was rising uh, on the ascendant. Now, Capricorn as a sign is a very somber and serious sign, and it tends to see the problems before it sees the opportunities. Capricorn is a sign that can be so effective and can get so much done because it's looking at the problems and it's looking at how we need to work through them. Capricorn is a sign that is ruled by the planet Saturn, and Saturn is the, the lord of time. It's what weathers us. It's what helps us build our strength through resistance. Uh, 
There are no planets in the first house. We just have the Capricorn rising. And what the rising sign does is it functions kind of as your face. It's like, this is the thing you're looking out from. And it's your identity in a lot of ways. It's your personality. And so it's how the world will give you back to yourself. It's what the world sees in you. Capricorn rising person is going to see the world through the lens of Capricorn. And that means that when we look out at the world, it's not going to be a world full of opportunities. It's going to be a world full of pretty serious business. And when other people see you, uh, they may see a person who exhibit some of the Capricorn tendencies. So there could be a kind of stoicism or rigidity. Capricorn definitely has an authority to it if that authority is claimed. And so they may also see you as someone who is very self-contained or able to do whatever and maybe not needing help. In order to know more about Capricorn, we want to look at Saturn. And Saturn is the ruler of Capricorn, as I mentioned. And so Saturn is going to be a very important planet in your chart. And it's going to describe in a lot of ways how Capricorn is functioning. Saturn is in a really interesting position in this person's chart. It is at 23 degrees of Aries, which is exactly conjunct the IC. The IC is abbreviation for Imam Coeli. This is Latin. It's the root of the chart. It's literally like the, the place where the chart is anchored, the place where it's planted. Uh, Similar to the Ascendant, the IC marks the beginning of the fourth house. The fourth house is the place of home and family. Home and family is a very broad concept. It can include culture that you're from, um, ancestry. It's kind of the, the foundation or the conditions from which you are arising. Saturn conjunct to the IC in Aries has a very heavy energy. So Saturn is like a rock. It's like a weight. And Aries is a sign that needs to self-identify. So wherever we have Aries, we need to work to know ourselves. Aries on the cusp of the fourth house is some kind of foundational experience that determines who you are in relationship to the home and family, to your early influences. You declare, this is who I am. Aries has a kind of warrior quality to it. It really needs to assert. It needs to define. Saturn, again, is like a rock and it's a really heavy weight and it can bring obstacles. So Saturn is kind of an actor of Capricorn. And again, Capricorn sees the problems. It sees the restrictions. It wants to get through them and it wants to succeed. Um, But there's a lot of labor wherever Saturn, wherever Capricorn is, it's like we really have to work through it. So we have Saturn right at the root of the chart, right at the anchor of the chart. And the first thing that this tells me uh, about you as a being, but also about your perspective on life, because Saturn is the ruler of your ascendant, is that part of what you're here to do is define yourself. And defining yourself has to be some kind of meeting opposition, meeting restriction. The way that you define yourself in a lot of ways is a battle. And it sounds like you've been through a lot of intensity in your life and you might really identify a lot with this kind of intensity or with these crises that you've been through. And I'm sure that they have shaped you because how could they not? And these are going to be experiences that you have to wrestle with and that you have to move through. Now, 
the potential of Saturn and the potential of Capricorn is that we become authorities and we build mastery in our lives. So I also want to say that there's potential in this placement for you that you are a person who really stands firmly in your own self-knowing and in your capacity to weather um, challenges as they come into your life. Saturn is in Aries, and there are a couple of other planets in Aries or placements in Aries that you have. At one degree of Aries, you have Chiron, and at nine degrees of Aries, you have your North Node. Chiron is uh, a centaur planet. One of the terms that people use for it often is the wounded healer. It's the place in the chart where we have to go on a healing journey, where we have to kind of grapple with the place uh, or, or the ways that we feel the most wounded. And we have to do the work to understand how our wounding is not actually personal. And so it's a process of being able to kind of pull the hurt parts out of ourselves, out of unconsciousness, to pull them into a space of awareness, to pull them into a place where we can look at them, where we can respect them, and then where we can learn from them. And the way that Chiron really manifests is when we start to learn how our pain is actually some kind of gift where we can heal or teach or hold space for others who are experiencing a similar kind of pain. With Chiron and Aries, you are a person who's going to have to work through the pain of your own identity, your own conditions, uh, and again, the struggle that it is to be you in the world and to assert yourself in the world. And the more that you work through it and understand that the resistance that you meet, I mean, it's yours, it's in your life, but none of us get to choose our lives. And you don't have these circumstances in your life because you're a bad person. You have them because this is the life that you were born into. There has to be a way that you can depersonalize the challenges where you can see yourself as a person who is worthy and valuable of being yourself even within these challenges. And that these challenges in fact have made you into someone who is courageous, who's resilient, who has strong, who uh, has power. When you encounter other people in your life who are struggling to assert themselves or struggling to believe in themselves or struggling to believe that their life is worth living, that's actually when you're going to do some important healing work is when you can hold space for them. And you holding space for them might be a, a big key in you feeling the value of your own life. In transits, and that means what's happening in the sky right now, Chiron has recently moved back into Aries. Chiron has a 50-year orbit, so we know this person is um, around 50. And you are now having your Chiron return. There's a lot of potential for you right now to recognize uh, the ways that you have been conditioned uh, to internalize negative stories about yourself, to internalize um, belief systems that, that place you at a, a kind of devalued space. Now, if you're growing up with poverty, if you're growing up with crisis, if you have relationships that are not sustainable, that aren't trustworthy, of course, 
You are going to internalize some pretty negative stories about yourself. This is an opportunity for you to look deeper underneath those stories and to claim your self-value, to really um, try and identify with a core of your being that is uh, a spirit that, um, again, has courage, that has a right to be here. It's really one of the Aries messages. Now, you also have North Node in Aries, and the North Node is a karmic placement. Um, It is the direction that we move towards. We are compelled towards it. The North Node is opposite to the South Node. We know you have South Node in Libra. And I'm going to get into this in a minute, but there are a lot of conditions in your life that I would say... um, maybe make it a little more challenging for you to assert yourself or that when you assert yourself, you might feel guilt about it. You may have had many lifetimes, if you want to think in terms of lifetimes, or you may have a lot of conditions within your uh, familial and societal conditioning that tell you that you need to kind of work for others and not for yourself. There's something that you are definitely needing to understand in this lifetime about pursuing your own aims. With the North Node in Aries, um, in the place that it is in your chart, in the third house, there's something here for me, there's a message here for me about you really taking uh, agency with your own thoughts. The third house is related to your mental patterns and your communications and recognizing the way that you use language with yourself. Um, So if you're telling, again, if you're telling yourself negative stories about who you are, if you're telling yourself stories about what you owe other people or something like that, um, these are things to pay attention to because there's an evolutionary need for you to become actually self-empowered and to believe in yourself. Now, Aries uh, is ruled by Mars. And Mars in your chart is at a really tricky place. So you have Mars at the very last degree of Leo in the eighth house. And if I want to know something about Aries, where you have Saturn, this very important placement, where you have Chiron and your North Node, then I need to look to the ruler of Aries, which is Mars. Mars at the last degree of Leo in the eighth house um, Let's start with the last degree. So the last degree of any sign, this gets back to Jesse's question about cusps, is an interesting degree point, and it's considered an afflicted degree. It is uh, kind of the moment before we shift. Now, maybe you've had this kind of experience, like you're about to move, and you're really excited, and then like the day before you move, you're like, I don't want to move. This is the perfect place. What am I doing? This is a mistake. At the very last degree, we've finished something and we're moving into something that's new, but we're not really sure what it is yet. And the very last degree of Leo is a particular kind of energy that's associated to royalty. It's where the star Regulus is. Um, And it's right before the royal energy of Leo shifts into the humble, um, more service-oriented, servant-oriented energy of Virgo. And so in that last degree of Leo, we can really start to doubt ourselves or we can get into like an egoistic myopia. 
But either way, there's a there's a kind of narcissism, and I'm I'm saying that uh, with recognition that we are all narcissists on some level. We all like circle around our own stories forever. And this Mars and Leo uh, to me says that something about your motivation and your energy, which is Mars, is in a place where it doesn't believe in itself. And you have a lot of Virgo in your chart. So this is a person who's a Virgo sun and Virgo moon. They're uh, born at a new moon in Virgo. They also have Jupiter, Pluto, and Uranus. They have a stellium of planets in Virgo. Now, a lot of Virgo energy is a servant-oriented, service-oriented, labor-oriented personality. And with Mars, the ruler of the root of your chart, the ruler of Saturn, the ruler of your north node in this place of your chart, the hit that I get is that your energy, your will gets subverted a lot. Mars is squared in Neptune. You have Neptune in the 11th house. And um, I think your energy can get sucked by other people a lot. You might doubt your own motivation. You might doubt your own right to take up space and to ask for what you want and need. You might very easily get pulled into emotional entanglements and emotional bondage. The eighth house is the place of trauma and the taboo. So you may be dealing with abuse stories in your lineage that have really um, kind of infected your personality with self-negating beliefs. And as you work with your energy, as you work with your own self-definition, and again, part of your karmic evolutionary path is to believe that you have a right to exist. Even though you're faced with crises, even though you're faced with struggle, you have a right to exist. You have a right to take up space. You have a right to assert yourself. And somehow you're going to have to grapple with that and fight for it and believe in it. Now, let's look at Neptune a little bit, this point that Mars is squaring, because Neptune has an important relationship to Saturn in your chart. Neptune is one point of a yod. Several people wrote in with questions about yods, and that's a question I want to get to in Instagram one of these days. Um, A yod is sometimes called the finger of God as an aspect pattern, and it's when two planets are working um, productively with each other through a sextile, and both of those planets are in conjunct, that means 150 degrees, uh, from another point. So in in this particular person's chart, they have Neptune um, sextile to Pluto. Neptune is in Scorpio, Pluto is in Virgo. And both planets are in conjunct to Saturn at the root of the chart. So this, first of all, gives even more importance to Saturn in your chart. The Yod aspect called the finger of God is pointing at Saturn. Saturn becomes the fulcrum for this energy. And so what we know is that this is you know, wherever Saturn is, is something you have to labor for, you have to work with anyway. And then we know that this is really something that you have to do. I really believe that you have been through a lot of struggle in your life because with this kind of chart, um, you know, you have to fight to survive. And it's a, it's a really defining kind of quality to the chart. And with Neptune and Pluto, you might have had to fight literally death. You might have had to fight um, being swallowed by some kind of collective experience with Neptune and Scorpio, the needs of other people, um, poverty, 
you know, with, with Neptune and Pluto, uh, both definitely can figure in. Now, Neptune and Pluto are both generational aspects. There's a lot that I could say about them as generations um, and cultural influences. I'm not going to go there because I, I don't know much about how this person experiences the world and their culture, and I want to be sensitive to that. So within a, a personal chart, Neptune is one of the places, or it's the place, where we lose ourselves. It's a dissolving influence. It dissolves separation in the being. Neptune is part of a stellium, again, a grouping of uh, figures in Scorpio. Now, the other planets, um, I'm using air quotes for planets, that are in Scorpio are actually asteroids. So um, you have Juno and Ceres also in Scorpio working with Neptune. May or may not talk about them. I don't know. Um, but there's there's some strong Scorpio energy in the 10th and the 11th houses. And these are the places in the chart that describe your public image, who you are in society, what you're trying to achieve, and how you're functioning within the collective and within the group. Now, with Neptune here and with Scorpio here, one thing that I'm going to say is you probably have a lot of sensitivity to other people. I'm going to guess that you are a natural empath and that it's very easy for you to become psychically bombarded uh, with other people's energy. You might experience public space and collective energy as um, a, a, a place where you get entangled, where you get absorbed. Um, this might also be a place where you actually have quite a lot to give. And with Pallas, Juno, and Ceres there, excuse me, Pallas is in Libra, whoop, take that out, with Juno, Ceres, and Neptune, uh, all in Scorpio, the sense that I get is that there's actually something that you can give in your public life, in the collective, that has to do with your sensitivity and with your psychological attunement and your awareness. Now, Pluto is part of a stellium, a grouping of planets in Virgo, and this grouping includes Jupiter, which is conjunct the moon at 19 degrees of Virgo, and then Pluto at 22 Virgo, the sun at 28 Virgo, conjunct Uranus at 29 Virgo. So a lot of Virgo. And especially with Jupiter conjunct the moon in Virgo, we've got a big feeling of... Um, this kind of spidey sense, this sensitivity to all the things that need to be done. There's going to be um, a lot of awareness and attunement to like all of the minutiae, all of the details. And in your eighth house, this is um, the eighth house is associated to the eighth sign of Scorpio. This is a place where you're again, kind of potentially being psychically bombarded. So you might throughout your life have had experiences where your needs are um, completely pushed away and your family or your caregivers or your community are giving you messages or you're perceiving messages that go, you're not important. You need to take care of other people. You're not important. Um, your, your needs cannot be met. Now, I also want to say that there is a tendency within the chart for you to put your own needs aside, for you to see your life as a life of duty and a life of obligation and responsibility and hardship. This is part of the story uh, in your chart. But like I was saying, a big part of your work is claiming your life. 
This is your life. You deserve to live your life. You deserve to have the kinds of experiences that you want to have. You live in the context that you do. You have access to the resources that you do. And within those contexts and resources, you still actually have choice. That doesn't mean you can make anything happen. It doesn't mean that you're going to work with the, um, what was it called? That book, the miracle, the message. No, it was something like that where you just, you know, imagine how awesome you are. And then all of a sudden everybody starts to to respond and you magnetically attract uh, the law of attraction, whatever that is. I'm not necessarily saying that, but I am saying that the more that you believe in yourself and um, recognize that it's not about fighting for yourself, it's not about going to war for yourself, even though it's probably felt like that throughout your life that you have to, it has to be a battle to, to survive, to live it all. Um, I'm curious about what happens when you somehow through your own facilitation, through your own inner awareness, encourage yourself to stop fighting. And this is going to happen on a lot of levels. First, it has to happen internally. And again, this isn't necessarily about resources. I understand that you're dealing with economic disparity and with poverty. There's so much struggle. There's so much fight that's going into your basic survival. Yet, is it possible for you to meditate with the intention with yourself that you don't need to be at war to survive? that it doesn't have to be a struggle, that you can get what you need. You've made it into your 50s. Somehow you've been able to survive. What ways have you been able to survive? Where have you been given what you need when you needed it? Try and focus on those places and fill your body with the sensation of peace. To as much an extent as you can, try and fill your body with the sensation of peace. That it's not about a battle. It's not about a struggle. Somehow you're going to get what you need. You can figure out how to get what you need. Then from there, can you meditate with this sensation in relationship? I think that through the chart and definitely through the experiences you've had in your life, you've probably had so many experiences, again, where it really is a battle, where you have to fight to be recognized and to be honored in your relationships, where you have to fight to get by. However, you do have a choice about how you meet people now. And not everybody wants to fight. In fact, I think most people really want to be at peace And for a lot of us, we're functioning in such a mindset of scarcity and in a place of panic and fear a lot of the time. And so we think we have to fight. And when we meet someone's energy that is confrontational or aggressive or self-protecting or mistrusting, we naturally kind of close off. We naturally go into a fighting space. I want to say that I think that you can invite peace more into your heart. And part of the reason that I'm saying this is because right up at the top of your chart, uh, conjunct your midheaven, and this is the place that's opposite to the IC, opposite to the root of the chart. It's uh, called the MC. That's the abbreviation for medium coeli, middle of the sky. Um, 
Venus is there at 23 degrees of Libra. Venus is in the sign of her rulership. Venus is the planet of love and equity and balance in the sign of relationship and justice and harmony. Part of your life's work is to learn to work with other people, to learn to trust other people, and to learn that when you're working in collaboration with other people, you can get what you need. Now, in reference to what I've already been talking about with your Virgo and Scorpio stelliums and your Mars in the 8th house, working with other people and collaborating with other people does not mean that you give them everything. It doesn't mean that you constantly put yourself last. It doesn't mean that you hate yourself. It means actually that you really have to fill yourself with a sense of self-worth. And that self-worth has to be grounded in your own knowing that you have a right to exist, that you have a lot to give to the world. You bring a lot of awareness, healing potential. Um, When you can let other people in and trust them, I think things might start to shift a little bit. I want to honor that in your question, you wrote about relationship instability, and you've probably had a lot of people let you down. And I think it's probably really hard to trust other people. So this is where I want to say again, you definitely want to check in with your own inner body. There's something in the physiology of the chart and the energetic of the chart that really needs to stand firmly in itself. So this isn't about needing other people. It's actually about standing very solidly in your own center and meeting other people in their own center. When you're not in a place of neediness, you'll be able to discern. Is someone's intent towards you coming from a balanced place? When you're not in a place of needing to fight or to prove anything, you'll be able to discern. Is this a person that you're actually interested in being in relationship with? There's quite a bit that's happening in your chart right now. Saturn and Pluto are coming together in your first house, and Saturn is just about to cross your ascendant again. It's been retrograde over your ascendant. The uh, ascendant in Capricorn is where the south node is currently transiting. These are where eclipses are happening. And that puts the North Node in your seventh house of relationship. In the Cancer season episodes, I talked quite a bit about eclipses and the meaning of these eclipses in Cancer and Capricorn. In brief, the South Node in Capricorn is a place where we're letting go of something. And Saturn conjunct to the South Node on your Ascendant is a symbol to me that it's time to let go of an old story about who you are. It's definitely time to let go of needing to do it all yourself. Again, Capricorn is a sign that can be very self-preserving. It doesn't really like to ask for help. With the configuration of your chart, I think you've had a lot of experience in your life where you can't ask for help because there's really none around and a lot of expectation on you to be the one who's showing up. That doesn't have to be the story anymore. I really want to encourage you to be open to relationships where you can ask for what you need, and that's going to require a different kind of emotional availability from you, and this is the North Node in the 7th house. 
in cancer, the North Node, this is the direction that we're moving into. We want to know more about our own boundaries, what we can and cannot give, how much space we can or cannot hold. And we also really want to soften in our defenses. The feeling that I get in your chart is really kind of two main messages. So the first message is that you have to believe in yourself. You have to believe that you are worth your life and that your life is your life regardless of the circumstances and circumstances are not fair. We live in a world of inequity and injustice, but you actually have something to offer to that inequity and injustice because you know something about it. And the more that you claim your own experience and recognize the value of your experience, of your perspective, you can leverage that to work with other people in the world. Especially your Chiron and Aries tells me that you have the capacity to help other people become themselves. I don't know if you've considered working in education, particularly working with people who are in their adolescence or in rites of passage. You have a really good chart for working with people of this age and for being a person who is um, quite sensitive, quite uh, emotionally aware. And the more that you do the work to claim yourself and claim your own life, the more you're really going to be able to help other people as they're in positions of doing that as well. Now, some other ways that I could see the aspects in your chart functioning really well is as some kind of um, doula. So this goes back to the full moon reading that I gave at the, the beginning of this episode. Um, you have an incredible capacity to work with hardship. And this has been the story of your life. Now, this capacity can help you work with others. And I think that you know a lot about crisis and you know a lot about intensity. And you may be a, the perfect person to work with people who are in moments of crisis and intensity. This could mean that you are a death doula, that you help people transition from one side to the next. It could mean that you have something to offer around trauma. And depending on the access that you have to training or to education, that could look anything uh, like from a first responder and someone who reads a lot about trauma and trauma therapy to uh, a somatic therapist and someone who gets a degree in something. And again, I don't know what your access is or what's possible for you. And I do know that you're already in your 50s. And so you might already have uh, something that you're doing that feels like the thing to be doing. I guess that's where I'm going to leave it for now. I think that you um, have worked through a lot and that you're still working through a lot. And you're at a moment where there's quite a lot of potential for you to shift your relationship to your own story. I want to encourage you to ask for help and to trust people, but also to use your discernment in identifying what you really need and in asking the right people. Um, this is going to require you spending time with yourself and the biggest piece here is for you to forgive yourself, um, to, to kind of dismantle and dissolve any of your internalized stories about why your life has been so hard. And I think 
anyone who's dealt with a lot of trauma and a lot of hardship on some level, and this doesn't always make sense logically, but on some level, there's a feeling of, I deserve it because I'm a bad person or something like this. And from the looks of your chart, I think that you dealt with hardship most of your life. And so these stories are going to be really deep. I'd love to encourage you to forgive yourself, to spend time um, trying to really love yourself, trying to love your essence, trying to see that the ways that you've worked through challenge and hardship are exactly what makes you a valuable person in the world. I hope that's helpful. Again, take what works, leave the rest. If I say anything that doesn't resonate for you, remember that I'm speaking from my own context and I can't know all of the particulars about your life. Um, anything that I say that kind of you're going to wrestle with or like run it over in your head for a bit, it might inform you in the way that you need to be informed. And so it may not be exactly the thing that I said. It could be the way that you respond to the thing that I said, which is the important lesson for you to take away. All right, everyone. Well, that concludes uh, this Q&A episode and full moon episode. And thank you so much for listening. Um, Happy full moon. I'm wishing you all the best for this full moon and so much love from me to you. Bye for now.